0: Good morning, church family. Okay, a minute to get some more. As Pat said, beautiful music. We could definitely take some time to just sing all day. That would be awesome. Just a, and there will be a time where we will get to do that. <laughs> while we work and while we live. We'll just be singing praises all the time. It'll be great. If you would, uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke, the eighth chapter of Luke. Um, We are going to continue through this marvelous book, this marvelous gospel of the gospel of Luke. And today we're going to be talking about a pretty familiar story. It's a pretty familiar story. In fact, if you've been in Uh, church, uh, pretty much any portion of your life, grew up in Sunday school, or maybe you're, even if you're new, you've probably heard about the story of Jesus calming the storm, right? We've probably seen uh, children's books with Jesus on a boat and his arms in the air and waves just kind of crashing around him. We've seen pictures on walls. This is a very familiar story. And then today we're looking at Luke's narrative account of this particular story, And within this very familiar story, within this very familiar story, is an immense amount of depth. There's a lot of depth in this story. And while it's brief, it's very brief, just four verses, it carries with it some very heavy, heavy truth. We're going to tackle some of that today. We're going to tackle some of that today. And this truth, while it's heavy, it must be dealt with. It is truth that must be dealt with. And namely, it is the truth about who Jesus is. It is a truth about who Jesus is and also what it means to believe. What it means to have faith. Last week, we discussed and kind of based off verse 17, that Jesus was going to be revealing to his disciples more and more and more about himself. He was going to be revealing more about himself, who he is, why he came And of course, a whole lot more than that. And today, in this narrative, Jesus is going to reveal something about himself, something about himself that leaves the disciples in absolute awe and wonder. He's going to reveal something about himself that leaves them asking one of the most important questions in all the universe. This is the most important question that has ever been asked in all the universe, and is the most important question that will ever be asked in all the universe, and it is, who then is this? Who then is this? And the answer to this question, you have to understand that the answer to this question and all its implications to the answer of this question, it will absolutely change the trajectory of your life. It will change everything for you. The truth of this, when heard, when received, when gripped, when treasured, when buried into your heart, what it will do is it will set you free. It will set you free from the treasures of this world. It will set you free from the bondage or addiction of pride and self-sufficiency and self-worth. It will set you free from the fear of death. It'll set you free from the fear of this ever-changing climate in our current world. And it will be a truth that carries you through any trial all the way to the end. You must know with certainty. You must know with certainty and with clarity who is Jesus Christ. You must know. And that leads us to our main point today. The main point is this, and if you have a handout, uh, great, if not, maybe a few of the rows have some extras, Um, work that out. But main point is this, is who you believe Jesus to be, who you believe Jesus to be is the most important thing about you. Who you believe Jesus to be is the most important thing about you. This is what Luke wants theophilus to know. This is one of the main reasons, as we remember from chapter 1, verse 4, why he even wrote this gospel. This is what he wants theophilus to know, and this is what he wants us to know, and he will spend the rest of this chapter and the rest of this entire gospel narrative revealing this very truth. He'll also be revealing what it means to believe or trust or have faith. You're going to see that a lot throughout the next few narratives, what it means to believe or have faith in him. And so my prayer is, is that this morning, my prayer is that this morning is that we're here today, that we will all walk away with a better understanding, a deeper and better understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what it means to live by faith in this person, Jesus. So let's pray as we go to God's word this morning. Lord, there is no greater truth in all the world than than who you are. There is no greater knowledge to have. There is no greater um, truth to bury in our hearts except that you are the sovereign God of the universe. And when we get this God, I know it will change everything. It will take us to another level of uh, love for you, another level of what it means to live this life for you. It will take us to whole other levels of walking with you and leaving behind the things of this world. And so, reveal yourself to us today. As we pray every week, show us your glory. Rob us of of the treasures of this world. Avert our eyes from the things of this world with your glory. Let it shine so bright that everything else just fades away. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Luke chapter eight, starting in verse 22. Starting in verse 22, it says this, now, on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat And he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. And so they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped. And it became calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? So to set up the scene a bit, okay, to set up the scene a bit, it's important to understand that it's been a long day and evening has come. Okay, evening has come. In fact, Mark's uh, telling of this particular tale, uh, Mark 4.35 tells us that it was on that day when evening came. So we know it's evening. And when he says on that day, he's meaning the same day that Jesus was teaching the parables. And he's also teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. And so it's been a very full day of teaching. It's been a very full day of teaching a lot of people, and so think of teaching, okay? Think of teaching or speaking for hours and hours and hours on end, maybe without break or maybe not much of a break, okay? Kind of just going from one session or one group of people to another. Now, almost anyone can tell you that teaching up here even for just 45 minutes uh, to an hour can be very draining, It can be very exhausting. Talk to talk to anybody. Some of the best naps in all the world have been had by preachers on Sunday afternoon. Some of the best and deepest naps ever. Okay? But hours and hours of teaching, this would take a toll on anyone's mind and body in a way that would just leave almost anyone exhausted. It would leave anyone exhausted. And so we pick up here in verse twenty two, and we see that after a full day of teaching, Jesus says, Let's go to the other side of the lake. Okay, let's go. So they get in a boat. And we should understand this boat is not like a little tiny rowboat. Okay, this is like a sailboat. Uh, It can fit around a dozen to two dozen people. And we can get that because it says they they sailed along. So we know this is some sort of sailing vessel. It's not just a rowboat. Okay, and uh, just as a side note, uh, Matthew's gospel account says that Jesus saw a large crowd before he said this. So it kind of appears that his motivation is kind of wanting to get away from the crowd, get a break, and go to the other side. And in Mark's gospel, it says that other boats followed. So it's not just one boat. But we can picture this, right? There's a lot of crowds. He's been teaching all day. He says, let's go to the other side. He gets in his boat. The disciples get in with him. Other disciples, there's a lot with them. They get in their boats. and They're like, all right, let's go. So there's, there's, a, there's kind of a fleet. There's a fleet of boats going to the other side. Okay, and so the place or the setting of this event is in the Sea of Galilee. Okay, it's in the Sea of Galilee, which is really just a lake. It's a really big lake. Okay, and one unique feature of this particular lake is that it's about 686 feet below sea level, which makes it the lowest freshwater body of water in the world. It's really low. All around it are a lot of mountains, which are really tall, stretching up to about 10,000 feet. And so within that, you're going to create this really, really big wind tunnel. In fact, the Sea of Galilee is known for having a lot of just kind of random storms that will kind of appear out of nowhere. And because of these random storms, the water gets really, really agitated. And so that's, that's the setting here. They're in this big, big lake. And, but Jesus wanting to do more than just take a break. He wants to do more than just take a break. He knows that he has a divine appointment on the other side of this lake. So more than wanting to take a break, he has a divine appointment on the other side of this lake. And so he's setting out, not really just to get time away, but to go on a rescue mission. He's going out to go on a rescue mission on the other side, and he's taking his disciples with them. And we know that based on the next text, which, you know, Lord William will get to. Next week. But picking up in verse 23, it says that as they were sailing along, as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. Okay, so they're on the Sea of Galilee, it's a fleet of boats, evenings come, they're going to the other side, and it says here that Jesus fell asleep. Which brings us to subpoint one that Jesus is God-man. Jesus is God-man. Luke, within this one phrase of telling us about Jesus falling asleep, in this one statement, we see what Luke and what the other gospel writers want the readers to know namely, that Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal creator of all, he took on flesh and he took it on all the way. He took on flesh all the way. In other words, Jesus is human, he's a man. The eternal Son of God got tired. Think about that for just a minute. The one who made the world, in six days, that kind of power, he needed a nap. This means that we have a Savior that is able to fully empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's really, really able to, as fully man and fully man, able to empathize with our weaknesses. He doesn't just look down on us from above and say, Oh, I know how it feels when he's never entered into human flesh, but he has. He absolutely has. He became fully man and he entered fully into our mess with us. Think about this. For the the first time in all of eternity, God needed to eat. God needed to eat. God needed sleep. God could bleed. God could get hurt and God could be tempted for our sake. For our sake, in his glory, God took on flesh. Scriptures say that for our sake, he became poor. For our sake. And this God man, Jesus, he had so exhausted himself from teaching and giving of himself to others that he, he needed a nap. It's incredible. There's so much more to say here in regards to God or Jesus being God and man. Fully God, fully man. But the point here is that we're not going to be able to tackle all of that today. But the point is here is that he's not half man and half God. He's not part man and part God. He's 100% God and man. And we will see that how he plays out the next few verses revealing that he's not just man who needs a nap, but he's also fully God. Verse 23 continues, and it says that a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake. A fierce gale of wind, and they they began to be swamped and to be in danger. Now, the word for fierce gale, this is an interesting, you know, we just think of kind of a, a thunderstorm came in. But it was actually a word for hurricane. This is the word for hurricane or whirlwind. Okay, this was a massive, massive storm. As I mentioned earlier, the Sea of Galilee is known for having kind of these sudden and without warning wind storms that kind of come barreling through from above and they get trapped and it kind of swirls around the lake. But this was more than normal. This was extreme. This was beyond its normal activity because uh, as we know, these men were seaworthy men. They've seen storms before. But this one left them terrified. In fact, in Matthew's account, it says that it was a seismic quake, meaning that there was like an earthquake going on underneath and winds coming from above. They were getting attacked basically from all areas. This was no small storm. We should not see this as anything less than a life-threatening hurricane on a boat that holds no more than 20 people. And the text says they began to be swamped and be in danger. The word for swamped means to fulfill. So in this, te- in this context, or in this case, that means that they were being filled with water. Waves were coming up over the boat, into the boat, filled with water. They were being undertaken. In fact, every account that tells of this narrative talks about how the boat was being basically capsized and overtaken by water. This was no ordinary storm. And we have a bunch of seaworthy men who are absolutely terrified. They knew what was coming. This was it. This was it. Look at verse 24. It says, they came to Jesus and they woke him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Not we might perish. I think we're going to die. No, this is it. This is it. We're calling it. We're done. It's over. We're dead. These disciples, they, they followed Jesus, right? They've watched him perform miracle after miracle, and they believed in him to be the Messiah and in whatever context they kind of thought that to mean, right? They saw the storm. They felt the waves crashing down on them. The only thing they were absolutely certain of in that moment is we are as good as dead. We are as good as dead. The phrase, we are perishing, is not an exaggeration. In fact, uh. I don't really blame them. I mean, I try not to be too hard on them. If if it were me and I was in that boat, and to be honest, if you were in that boat, we'd all be thinking the same thing. This is it. We're going down, okay? Now, you get a good look, too, into their hearts and Mark's version. They actually come to Jesus and say, Master, don't you even care? Don't you even care that we are perishing? You ever said that before? Don't you even care? In other words, in other words, Master, Master, we're going to die and you're going to die. It's all coming to an end. How can you sleep at a time like this? This was where they were at. And yet, there is Jesus. There is Jesus in the midst of all the chaos, just sound asleep, perfectly at peace, perfectly calm in the midst of this massive hurricane. It's incredible. And it's not just because he was tired. He wasn't that exhausted where he could just sleep through a hurricane. It's not just because he was tired. No, he slept peacefully because he knew who was in charge. He knew who was in control, namely him. He was in charge. He was in control. And that gave him absolute peace. We should not think for a moment... We should not think for a moment that Jesus was at all surprised by this storm. He was not surprised by this storm, and he did not just know ahead of time. It wasn't just in his foreknowledge that he knew that the storm was coming. I want us to get this. I want us to understand this. Jesus brought the storm. Jesus brought the storm. He brought the storm because he is sovereign over the storm. He's sovereign over the wind and the waves and all of that was taking place. He's sovereign over it. He was not caught off guard. He brought it. Which brings me to my next point, is that Jesus found rest in his own sovereignty. His own sovereignty, sovereignty, and so should we. To be sovereign is not to be reactive. We should not think that God is sovereign and he's reacting sovereignly. You don't react sovereignly. All sovereignty is played out in constant proactiveness. Constant, proactive, purposeful, and intentional in every detail. Do we think perhaps that the storms in our life, as God's doing, or is he just kind of reacting? Do we tend to think of trials and sickness, natural disasters, tornadoes, all the things that can kind of hurt us on this earth as all part of God's sovereign work? Yes, this hurricane was the result of living in a broken world. It is the result of living in a broken world, and yes, all calamity is the result of being in a broken universe, but listen, being broken doesn't mean that it is outside of God's sovereign control. It's still under his control. David says in Psalms 42, he's under under it. He's under waves, and he's crying out to God saying that these waves are crashing over me, and what does he say? He says, your waves are crashing over me. Your breakers are crashing over me. God is the one who brings the waves. God is sovereign over all things, even calamity. Even calamity. And he uses it all for his own glory in the sanctification of his bride. The sanctification or the purification of his church. He brings storms Listen to this. He brings storms to draw a running prophet like Jonah back to himself. He uses storms to bring a running prophet back to himself. And he also does it to display his own strength and power in order to increase and refine the faith like he does here in his disciples. He uses, it. He uses calamity for both correction and for glorification. For drawing us to himself and for sanctification of his people. Reality is that no matter how you slice it, it doesn't matter. There is not one straight atom on this earth that God does not have absolute and perfect control over, which means that there is not one calamity. There's not one calamity on this planet that God has not ordained or used or will use for his own glory and the purification of his people, which means that no calamity in your life is ever, ever, ever wasted. It is under his perfect supervision. And this brings Jesus peace. He can sleep because he knows who's in control. And it should bring us peace as well. It should bring us peace as well. That God who loves us and gave himself for us is in perfect and total control verse 24 continues verse 24 continues and it tells us it tells us that he got up like uh oh <laughs> it says he got up think about this for a minute right the boat is being tossed around it's not like this little tiny thunderstorm There's hurricane winds and waves are crashing in the boat people are probably screaming Right? They're probably screaming and panicking. They're probably sliding around the boat like drunkards as they can't control themselves. They're crying out, right? And some says it says, Master, Master, and other people are like saying, Jesus, Jesus is going nuts, not just on this boat and the other boat. And Jesus gets up, he puts his hands in the air and says, Peace, be still. And then shoo, Quiet. Perfect peace not even a ripple, wind silenced, waves down. It says he rebuked the wind and the waves. It says he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. Can you fathom? Can you fathom being in that boat? Can you fathom being an eyewitness to such an incredible, life-changing event? I mean, do we know and understand what happened? Do we read texts like this and just like breeze through that text and go, oh, that was cool. All right, next story. Or do we sit, when we read a text like this, do we sit and just marvel at what God did? Do we try to think about what God is revealing when he did it? When we first started going through this gospel back in, I think, September or October, right? We discussed how much Luke and the other gospel writers, how much their focus was on this grand or what we refer to as this meta-narrative. This big, grand, meta-narrative of Scripture of God's redemptive plan from beginning in Genesis all the way through Revelation And so let's go back. Let's go back all the way to Genesis, all the way to before the fall of man. Let's think about this for a minute. When God God had established and created the universe, he established Adam as king and ruler of this universe. He established Adam as king and ruler of this universe, of this earth. And this earth was paradise. It was absolute perfection. He said it was very good. Very good. And Adam's job was to multiply, cultivate, and rule over this planet. That was his job. But as we remember, this king, this king, he sinned and he exchanged the glory of God or he exchanged the, uh, uh, the, the time to be walking with him and ruling this world underneath him and serving him and worshiping him. He exchanged that for a lie that he could be God himself. The result... The result is that God cursed man. God cursed man and the earth, and so paradise was lost, humanity was cursed, and the earth was cursed. Cursed by whom? He was cursed by God. It was God's curse, and he had every right to do it, didn't he? He had every right to do it. It was, it was good, it was gracious, it was just, it was perfect, it was holy for God to curse the earth rather than to just annihilate it like he had every right to do, which means it's his curse. It belongs to him. He alone can rule over it and operate within it how he wishes, and he alone can break it. He alone can break it, and so As we know, from that point on, from that point on, after Adam and Eve fell, life was hard, right? Life was hard, and the earth was struck with disease and famine, demonic activity, natural disasters, death. All of which is to remind us that we live in a broken world. All of which exists currently to remind us that not all is as it should be because of our sin, It is because of our sin. And it should make us hate it. It should make us hate sin and long for a new world. And God did give that promise. He did give a promise. He said that there would be one who would redeem a people back to himself. This was part of this big, grand, redemptive story that God would redeem a people back to himself and he would rule again. He would rule again and he would bring peace to the earth. He would bring peace to the earth. Yes, real peace like lions and lambs laying together. Right? Uh, Like no more wars. No more viruses. No more sickness. No more disease. And the earth would no longer be groaning. Romans 8 tells us this. It says, for creation, creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly. Like, it wasn't just a natural consequence of sin. Like, sin entered the world and then kind of just spread its natural tentacles out to the earth. That's not how it happened. This wasn't willingly. It says, says, but because of him. Who? God who subjected it. He is the one who placed the curse on the earth. But he did it in hope. It says here, It says here, because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And it would obtain freedom. Freedom. And he continues in verse 22. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. Even until now. We witness that, don't we? We witness this groaning Earth. The question is, the question is, who has the authority to break this curse and set it free? Who has the authority to break this curse? Who can reverse the fall of man and heal the brokenness of our world? Who? Who can possibly have the power to reverse the curse of God except God Himself? Point number three. Jesus is the curse breaker. Jesus is the curse breaker. And this is what was put on display. This is what was put on display in this event today. Man can do a lot of things, but control the earth. Show power over the curse that is on the earth. Only God has that kind of power. Only God has that kind of power. In fact, Colossians 1 tells us that in him being Jesus, all things, like all creation, hold together. He holds everything together by the power of his word. He alone is the one who can break the curse. Jesus alone is the one who can break the curse. And he has put on powerful display, right here in this moment, he has put on powerful display that he has dominion over the earth. He has dominion over the earth and the curse of the earth, and he alone can tame it at will. In fact, in the next chapter, the next chapter of Luke, Jesus will ask, who do you say that I am? He will ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? And this event, this event, as we can see, has left no doubt. Has left no doubt, as Peter will answer, saying, you are the Christ. You are the Christ of God, which means that he is the one who can break this curse, bring peace to this earth, and establish his kingdom forever. That's that's what's happening today. He's revealing this about himself. And he says that when they saw this, when they witnessed this event, he says they were afraid and amazed. They were afraid and amazed. Continuing in verse 25, he said to them, Where is your faith? And we're going to touch on this in a minute. And they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the waters? And they obey him. They were fearful. They were trembling even, as Matthew's account puts it. It says they were amazed. Of course they were. Of course they were. They had just witnessed more power and more authority than they had ever seen up until this point. I picture just kind of Jesus after he's calmed everything. Like he's just kind of standing there in the boat, just kind of rocking a little bit, It's just quiet. Maybe you hear some birds chirping, but no one's making a sound. And he's just standing there you hear the little bit of the breeze but all eyes from every boat are just on him. Like eyes wide open just cannot stop looking at this man who just told the wind what to do and told the storm to stop and be calm and it did. I think all eyes are widened on him because I I pictured these people in the boats just kind of trembling. Because they know that right now they are in the presence of the Almighty. They're in the presence of the Holy One. The Eternal One. The One who never began. And the One who will always exist forever. And He is the Promised One. This is complete and utter awe. It's awe and it's also wonder. Wonder. In fact, I wonder if any of them thought of Psalm 107. It's on your handout if you have it. You can read along with me. I wonder if when they, when they saw this happen, if any of them thought of Psalm 107. It starts in verse 23, and it says, Those who go down to sea ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens and went down to the depths and their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered around like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. I love when the word of God just kind of fits together maybe this is a prophecy i don't know i didn't research much but look that up but i thought that maybe they thought of this psalm as they wondered in awe of who this man is as they stared at this god man who calmed the seas and of course their question who then is this who then is this it was a rhetorical question like they know they know who it is they know it is this is why they're afraid This is why they are afraid. This is the response of any sinner who is in the presence of holiness. This is the response of anyone who is broken in the presence of of the unbroken. Of course they were afraid. This is a very common theme throughout all the gospels. That whenever Jesus reveals his holiness, the unholy tremble. This is normal. Normal. And this is what they have come to know. This is what they have come to know, that he is the one who will make all things new. He is the one who is promised of the Old Testament, and he is prophecy fulfilled. The question is, is that if if they'd only known, if they'd only known who was in their boat during the storm, would they have said, do you even care, Jesus. Where they have responded the way they did. To which Jesus replies, it is to those types of comments, where is your faith? Where is your faith? And I believe, I believe he asked this not out of disappointment. I don't think he was totally disappointed. He's teaching them. They're learning. It's okay. Like, they're learning. We get it, right? But he wanted to give them a lesson. He, I think he said it to them as a lesson to show them what they did not quite understand yet. But They will. They will. This was a test of their faith. This is a test of their faith. And we should know that tests, tests are not just to see how much you know. I think we sometimes think, man, I, I failed or passed the test. Tests are not just meant to show, or teach or, or show you how much you know, but they also teach you what you are supposed to know. They teach you what you are supposed to know. Tests are meant to refine you and make you better. This, this test was meant to show them where they should Put their faith, him. Now, if you all ever read this story, and wondered what would faith have looked like in this situation, there's waves crashing in, right? They're just trying to—they're on a boat trying to get somewhere. What what would what would a faith actually looked like? Right. I mean, it appears they had some sort of faith. Right. They did come to Jesus. They didn't just jump overboard and try to swim themselves. Right. They—they had showed some dependency. They showed some dependency. And they had seen Jesus do all kinds of supernatural things. And perhaps perhaps they felt that Jesus could help in some way. I'm sure they did not expect this. I'm sure they didn't expect God himself to show up. Because if if they had known God was in the boat with them, what do you think their faith would have looked like? We should know that faith, faith looks like trust. Right? It looks like trust, namely in his faithfulness, in his faithfulness and in his character, and that he will always do, he will always do as He's promised. God will always do as He's promised, which is the next point is that Jesus is the promise keeper. Jesus is the promise keeper. Faith, faith believes or rests. In the character, faithfulness, and promises of God. That's what it is. Look back to verse 22 with me just for a second. It's not very far. Just a few finger strokes up. Verse 22. Jesus said, let us, that's everybody, go to the other side of the lake. He said, let us go to the other side of the lake. Now, they may not have understood this, but this was always Jesus' intentions. His intentions were always to get to the other side of the lake. It was, a, it was a promise, in a sense, that they would get to the other side. Now, of course, a promise is only as good as the one who promised it. Right? So, trusting in a promise, it gives glory to the person who promised it. Who gave it. Notice, Jesus does not say, let us go to the other side of the lake, Lord willing. Right? The Lord said it. Therefore, the Lord wills it. Period. Right? Jesus is going on mission to the other side of the lake. And he said, I'm taking you with me. I'm taking you with me. Opposition will come. Okay? When we go on mission together, opposition will come. Suffering will come. But will you remember what the Lord has said and rest in that? Will you remember what I said? I said I will get to the other side, didn't I? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Faith is believing in the promises of God. If they had known who was in the boat and who had made the promise, would they have panicked? Would they have panicked like they did? What they did instead is they looked to the circumstances, and the circumstances made promises. And they believed those promises over God's promises. Those promises were a lie in that sense. And this is our tendency, isn't it? This is our tendency is always to kind of focus on the trials of our life, the hardness of our life, the burdens, all of the effects of the curse. And we all kind of just shrink our lives down to the size of our problems. We focus on the problems and not on one important thing that God is sovereign and He's good and He's in our boat. God is sovereign and He's good and He's in our boat and He has made promises, promises to us, promises that if we would just cling to these promises, they're in His Word. We'd cling to these promises and we would trust in these promises. Therefore, trusting in Him, then we can weather any storm. Any storm. We can bear fruit in any circumstance and we can be faithful in any storm. We can through the pain, it's not going to be easy. We can through the pain. Through the suffering, through the tears, remain faithful to the one who has promised to keep us and carry us and grow us and make us more like him. Walking by faith, church family, walking by faith in this life is walking through trial. It's walking through hardship, through suffering, through pain, through seasons of loneliness, through seasons of loss, But not in ignorant bliss. Not in some kind of fake happiness as if nothing wrong is happening to you. But we walk by faith. Or a joyful hope in the promises of God. He's given you promises for those moments. For those seasons. For these disciples, I think it looks like rowing. I think faith looks like rowing. Meaning you just keep rowing. Jesus said we'd get there. Jesus said we'd get there. And they're, they're telling that to one another. Right? They're encouraging one another. Guys, just keep rowing. Yes, it's hard. Yes, I'm getting bruised up. Yes, I'm getting pummeled by waves. Yes, it feels like I am drowning right now. But just keep rowing. Just keep believing. Keep trusting. Jesus said we'd get to the other side. Persevere. Keep rowing. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that we have in this boat men who were absolutely so afraid to die? And yet, in just a little while, these same men will rejoice in their sufferings. They will actually absolutely be fearless unto death. Many of them will die a martyr's death for the sake of the gospel. No longer afraid. No longer afraid. Why? Why? Because they believed these promises. They believed these promises. They finally knew who Jesus really was and all the promises that he had made. And so now they knew the promise maker and the promises were just as sure. These promises are also ours. They are our promises, and they are yours if you're in Christ. If you are in Christ, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. These men had clinged to one particular promise. And later in their life, the promise of the resurrection. The promise of the resurrection is that you too will be raised up to newness of life and physically I'm sorry, newness of life now and physically in the kingdom to come. That's the promise of the resurrection. That's the promise of the gospel. Do Do you believe that promise? Do you believe that promise? Then shouldn't we be fearless with our lives? What is there to fear? If you cannot die forever. You can be raised up to newness of life. Like we get a new body. We get a new body. Do you believe that? We get a new earth. What would your life really look like if you believed this promise? What What would it really look like if you believed this promise? What risks would you take with your life? Would you go to Liberia? Would you brave that jungle? Would you go into the neighborhoods? In the midst of a pandemic? Would you risk, for the sake of the gospel, knowing I get a new body? It'll be okay? What fear could be keeping you from fulfilling your calling? What promise are you not believing that could keep you from fulfilling your calling? Jesus said in Matthew 28 He said, All authority has been given to me. That's a promise. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go. Therefore, go and make disciples. You will suffer. You will suffer. You will endure trials. It will be hard. It will be hard. But remember the promise of I am with you always. Is that comforting to you? You will be raised up again one day. Go. Go fulfill your calling. On the back of your handout, I wrote out some promises. On the back of your hand, I wrote out some promises, and I won't go through them today. We don't have time to go through them today, but I want you to go home and meditate on these promises. Go over them at the dinner table with your family. Think through these promises, and remember that these promises are from one, the one who made the earth. He's the one who cursed the earth, and he is the one who will one day heal the earth, and all that is in it namely those who are His. These promises, like I said, we won't read them, but I encourage you to go home and read and meditate on these promises, these rock-solid promises that are for you if you're in Christ. They are for you. It's amazing uh, how God can minister to someone while they're preaching, while they're preparing Uh, this very sermon, um, this was a hard week for me. This was a very daunting and exhausting week to the point to where I actually felt like even just walking in the door today that my body was just going to fall down, just utter exhaustion. Throughout the week, I was going through trying to prepare for this sermon Uh, Things going wrong at work. It was always like just one thing after another. And I remember praying. I was like, God, I feel like these men in the boat. Just like one more wave and I'm done. One more wave crashing down and I can't take any more. One more thing of bad news. One more child getting sick. One more text that just says, oh no, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Whatever's after that. I, can't, I, I couldn't do it, but he, he gave me a promise. A text I haven't read in a few years just popped into my head. I love how the Spirit works. There's a promise from 2 Corinthians 12. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And that gave me strength. I knew his grace was good. I knew no matter what happened between that day and Sunday coming, that he would get me there one way or another. I knew that he would carry me. And I knew that no matter, no matter what happened with my business or at home or this sermon, one thing was for sure I had God in my boat. Let's pray. heavenly father your grace your grace is all we have and all we need we hold up the cup of god every day and say more grace more grace oh god be glorified in your provision of grace for us for we are weak but you are strong we bring nothing Accept our faith in a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. For you are the one who accomplishes all things. You are the one who is worthy of praise and honor and glory forever and ever. And we bow down. Thank you, God, for showing us who you are. Thank you, God, for always being in charge of the storms. We give you all glory and praise this morning. Amen.